You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The year is 1972, and in space, no one can hear you cry. The movie, Solaris. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the show where we are endeavoring to find the best films of all time. And currently, we are going through space films, and we have found a film that many people think is one of the best films about space ever made. It's called Solaris. And Amy, I got to tell you, well, I know we're going to get into it today, but I was dragging my feet on this episode because I knew it was going to be two hours and 47 minutes. And I just got to say to anyone out there, maybe in my same boat, do it. Take the trip. Go to Solaris. Let the, the waters wash over you. That's, that's what I'm going to say to all those people out there that may not feel like they want to get into an epic, epic film. I will, yes, and that and say what we're going to be talking about later in this episode is how so many of the ideas we have about space movies, and I think so many of the modern movies that people are really drawn to come from Solaris. And I think if you spend the investment watching Solaris, it will reframe how you see like 10 movies you already really like. And I think that the conversation you can have as a person who's seen Solaris is really interesting. That said, when we said like what space movies should we do? Lots of people are like you have to do Solaris. That's not even a question. Like this is considered like one of the touchstones of the space genre, a movie that I can say now, I feel like a lot of the thrust of our conversation will be like how Solaris works in conversation with a film that came out just a couple years before, 2001. So I think these two films together, this is what I'm excited to talk about with you today, Paul, really show the range of what sci-fi can do while having so much that seems like in common in their style. And I'm really excited to dig into it. So like from from these two texts, these are the two parents of all sci-fi films to come. Well, I love this. And, you know, last week you called an audible. I called Uh, it. 
I you slammed did. it down. We're going to do did. it. We are going to watch Aliens. We're adding that into our space uh, series here. And I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion. So that will be next week. And the reason why we're doing it next week is because the debate is still raging about the right stuff in Apollo 13. Truly, I've never seen such a neck and neck battle between two films. We cannot figure out what our finale will be. So I want you to jump into that discord. That's discord.gg slash Paul Shear. You can go into the unspooled area there. You can also go on discord.gg slash HDTGM. You can jump in there. You can have it on Facebook. You can go wherever you have these conversations. We are monitoring. Just tweet a meme at me. Tweet a meme at me. Whatever you want to do. Tweeted us. We need to have a definitive answer. And hopefully next week when we talk about aliens, we will have a definitive answer from you because the fans of one of these two properties will come out of the woodwork. Because truthfully, we could exist in space for a long time. We could do them both. But we have a great, we have two great miniseries coming up after this that we need you to weigh in on and be a part of. And we want to get to them a little bit as well. Let us know, because part of the drama is like, we did a couple polls, and usually when we do polls, it's like pretty clear across the board. Paul got one answer from his group. I got one answer from mine. Let's let's duke it out, y'all. Figure this out, man. I love it. And you know, Amy, I think it's about that time that we let the, the ocean of Solaris wash over us as we unspool it. The year is 1972. Three American astronauts become the last men on the moon during the final Apollo mission. Terrorists attack Olympic Village in Munich, killing 17. The Watergate scandal dominates the headlines in America. And for the first time, people are playing Pong. They're watching HBO and they are flashing digital watches. Uh, This year's movies include Cabaret, The Godfather, and today's film, Solaris. Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? Unpack it a little bit for us. All right, here we go. I'm opening up like I'm opening up a box of Tang. <laughs> Solaris is directed by the great Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky, considered one of the landmark most influential people in all of cinema history. It's from a script that he wrote alongside Friedrich Gorenstein and based, of course, on the very famous novel by Stanislaw Lem. Here's the plot. A psychologist goes up to this dysfunctional space station that's circling this ocean planet called Solaris to see why the research that these guys are doing has gone to hell. And he's supposed to decide whether or not to shut it down. There's already talk here on Earth about Solaris being this body of water covered by an alien ocean. Like the whole thing is sort of covered by this alien ocean that has already been screwing up with an uh, with a guy who landed on Earth. It made him see visions when he flew overneath it. So there's ideas that crazy things are happening up on this planet when you're near it. When he arrives, there are three other scientists up there who have already bombarded this planet with like weapons and x-rays. And in return, the alien has bombarded them with living representations of their own memories. People that they know who are tangible, that they can touch, who walk around the, the ship with them and yet are not actually real. This has already driven one of the scientists to suicide by the time our hero of a sort, Chris, arrives. For Chris, this means when he gets on this spaceship, his memory, or guest is what they call them, is his dead wife, Hari, who committed suicide when he left her 10 years before. At first, Chris is upset to see Hari. Then he decides that he really wants to keep his memory version of Hari alive because he failed her already, and yet this memory version of her keeps dying. And so it's torture because she still keeps dying, just like the real one did. 
And of course, this brings up questions like, how is the alien doing this? Like, how is it getting inside his head? The thing is, who knows and who cares? Because in this movie, the only thing that matters is that the emotions make sense. So even though this is in Russian, you're going to hear some emotions here. This is Hari in Solaris. Solaris premiered in the West on May 13th, 1972 at the Cannes Film Festival, where it won the Grand Jury Prize. What was in the air that weekend, you ask? What was in the zeitgeist? What was in your minds? Well, the number one song on the charts was Roberta Flack's The First Time I Ever Saw Your Face. It is a beautiful, romantic song that I think is perfect if you want to imagine it over the scene here where Hari is, shows up for the very first time on the spaceship and the camera that until now in this film has been really distanced and cold becomes this close-up of her lips bathed in a warm amber glow. So do your own... Pink Floyd in The Wizard of Oz. Think of that shot, and here's the song. The first time ever I saw your face I thought the It's kind of funny, Paul, that I think another Roberta Flack song would work really well for this movie, Killing Me Softly, because that is also what is happening in this movie. That song doesn't come out for the next year. So now I can just (laughs) pretend that she saw this movie and was like, yeah, people die and softly torture. I get it. I get it. I'm sad to say, and I'm, you know, opening myself to uh, being embarrassed, but I never had heard of this film. I had heard of the George Clooney remake, uh, the Steven Soderbergh film. Um, I didn't realize it was based on a seminal, you know, uh, Russian film that really, like we said earlier, um, you know, lays the groundwork for a lot of the conversations that we have been having. You know, I, I, I see a lot of similarities here between 2001, of course, but also Contact, especially. The director of this film did not see 2001 before he made this film, and it seems like the director of this film is kind of like blasé on it. Like, even though it is viewed as arguably the most widely known film of his outside of the Soviet Union, uh, he's like, it's my least favorite. So I, I, I think it's really interesting talking about creating something that you're not even very excited about, where last week we were talking about directors who keep on coming back to the work that people love of theirs. Uh, this this one, it seems like uh, that uh, Tarkovsky kind of just wanted to be done with it. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny. We should talk about just his temperament, right? Because like when you think of the cliche of the snotty film director, not the guy who's in Jodhpur's like yelling and bossing everybody around, like not like the, the John Huston model, but the one who's just like, Caddy and kind of mean. Caddy's, Caddy's, okay, maybe a bit unfair. But also, Tarkovsky famously was the kind of director who was like, I don't like any movies. People would be like, what movies do you respect? And his list would be like, eh, the only movie actually that we've seen, and we have been talking about the greatest movies ever made as considered by the AFI list, by like smart people, for what? I don't even know. Two years now? Three years? I've lost all track of time. I'm in Solaris. The only movie we've talked about in that entire list that he even respected is City Lights by Chaplin. Other than that, he's like, whatever. Who cares? I love it. (laughs) Yeah, he's a total... He is the ultimate film snob. Well, I mean, you... I mean, I fell in love with how much of a kind of a prickly guy he was when I read this article about him receiving the Telluride Medal, which I think is in about 1983. Um, He gets at the edge of the stage to accept this award, and he says, the cinema... She's a whore. First, she charges a nickel. Now she charges $5. When she learns to give it away, she will be free. <laughs> I was like, wow. 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 I mean, that's a, that's a mindset. That is a definite mindset. Like he, I mean, he, he hated 2001. Like we're going to be talking about these two films in context together. Yeah. But He thought that 2001 was lifeless and pretentious. Like his main thing about it was that- Cyril, that he thought Kubrick spent a lot of time thinking about the what would space look like? How would you fly? The Velcro shoes and the upside Mm -hmm. down pen. The things that I actually kind of like about the movie, you know, the invention of the iPad. He thought all of that stuff was junk, basically. That like Kubrick was trying to imagine himself a premonition artist instead of an actual artist. And he said, because of that- it is fake. And he said, for a true work of art, the fake must be eliminated. And 2001 was just too phony. You can see how these two films coming out around the same time of, of each other with, you know, two great filmmakers would get compared, you know. And they are very similar in plot, but very different in the emotional journey. And I would say that, you know, this film is all about the inward and like you mentioned, Kubrick's film is all about the outward. It, it really is about how you get there, where, you know, in this film, when our cosmonaut goes to space, it's, you don't see a ship, you don't see anything. You just see kind of a, I guess, if if you really even want to layer this on it, almost like what it would be like in um, G-Force, like that kind of, like he's sleeping, but he looks like he's, uh, his body's being a little bit uh, put through the ringer. But yeah, it, There is very little science in this film. Very little. And I think, I mean, yeah, like this, the surface comparisons between this and 2001 are absolutely accurate. You know, these are both filmmakers with a lot of confidence in their own vision who show you a scene and hold the camera and say, I want you to look at this and maybe I'll play some Bach in the background and this will be an epic moment for all of us. I want you to wait with me as the secrets of what I am showing reveal themselves to you. But I think for Kubrick, what he's revealing is very cerebral. Kubrick is really interested in kind of watching from a distance as mankind makes mistakes on a grand scale, you know, or like the the exploration as its own goal. And 
Tarkovsky is really interested in just exploring the soul, like what is happening. And space is a setting where you can do nothing but think about the soul. It's a setting where you leave your home to get closer to what you should have been thinking about when you were at home. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I'm so blown away by this movie because... It articulates something that is so hard to show in film. And I think that you see it sometimes in a movie like Inside Out, uh, or you can even see it in a movie uh, like Ghost Story, where the emotions of what we live in our head with uh, take over our lives. And I think we're always having a battle of that. We always, no matter who we are, but yet we choose to move forward, yet we push through. And this is a story about what if you you could have back those those wounds or you could have back those those mistakes or you know you could you could relive a moment over again and, and would is that better than moving forward or you know some version of that i know i'm a little bit all over the place but i'm just no you're yeah. right like cuz it's it doesn't declare ever what it wants to talk about so you're sort of like left to to piece it together you know like what we yeah. do know is that we have a guy on earth you know um his name is chris kelvin uh, one of the things i think is really fun about this movie is like it reminds me of Blade Runner in that it has this vision of the future where even though it's a Russian movie and everybody's speaking Russian, the names aren't really Russian. And when they're on Earth and you see visions of people driving around, like they're driving, the footage of where they're driving is actually Japan. So I think there's, I do think Ridley Scott probably watched this when he was thinking about what would Blade Runner look like. Yeah. This idea of going to other places in the world, but pretending that they're here to show that the world has changed while your footage is actually just real world footage. Like it is Japan, but he makes it look futuristic because it's not what you're expecting to see. And then you start trying to figure out like why it would be like this. And also why are our Russian scientists named like Chris and Burton, like what and snout. Like he, it's this melting pot idea of the future. That's really subtle. And in a way kind of reminded me of Looper. Like I was, I've always admired how Looper showed the future, not by inventing new cars, but by like relying on beat up cars from the present to show that mm-hmm. time had passed that I love that kind of way of thinking around sci-fi. If you can't like yes. build 90 cars and you can't build like a, a really big, 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 big spaceship and make it float with CG, like how do you do it? And so I think in this film, like from the beginning, you're, you're seeing an interesting way to do it that I think really set a tone for other people who didn't have the money that Kubrick did to make 2001. Right. And, you know, I know that his issue with Kubrick was that it was too caught up in the, um, in the how do you or what would it be like? But here's a movie that also 
does give over to some real world technology that does take over, like, uh, you know, the home video recorder, like they basically have VCRs and and flat panel TVs and, you know, FaceTiming. Yeah, Yeah. it's wild. Like, and, and I think, you know, he's using it as plot devices and and giving you just like you said, like just a paintbrush stroke of future. But, you know, when you see that house, there's nothing, you know, we're in the middle of a, of a, of a, a beautiful farm and, you know, you don't see what the cities look like. And so by putting it there, you're kind of buying a production value. Now, that scene, I did read something really interesting about this. And this is kind of going back to the fuck you attitude of uh, the director here. Because the way that I've heard this story told is twofold. He was a director who was like one for me, one for you type of director. And this was his one for you film. Like, all right, I'll make a space movie. Go. Yep. Here it is. You know, and yeah, he'd been trying to make a movie about his childhood. And in Russia, especially at the time, the censors wanted him to make money because like his first film had made a ton of money. And so it was I think this like maybe his third film and they wanted a moneymaker from him and he didn't want to give it. And then he was like, oh, this book is popular. They had literally just made a TV movie about Solaris like a couple years before. He's like, fine, fine, fine. This will be like my, this movie, as difficult as we've been framing it in this episode so far, he was like, this is my cash cow. This is my lazy, like, exploitation movie. I mean, and he makes this film that outwardly presents like Ganjan Hess going back to that film you're talking like oh yeah I'll make you I'll make a inner city Dracula film and then makes this other meditation on life and loss you know very similar makes this this movie that is you know uh so against mainstream I guess you know in in many ways you know it's such a, a personal film but that scene that he shoots in Japan you know, he convinces them, like, we need to go there. We need to shoot this scene. And that sequence is so long of just so a car long. driving. And and it's it's interesting because you can kind of get into a state when you watch the movie where you're kind of just like, oh, I'm into it. Like I'm just like watching a car drive. But is something happening? Is there, am I missing something? Because it goes, it's like a joke that keeps on repeating. And at a certain point, you're like, did I miss the joke? Is it still the joke? And then it gets funny again. It's like, there's something going on there. But apparently the, the rumor is that to justify the trip for the crew to go to Japan, he used all that footage. He's like, well, it's a, it's a three minute long scene, even though... <laughs> <laughs> like he could have used 15 seconds of it, you know, probably even stock footage. Uh, but yeah, so he just used like three minutes of a car driving through Tokyo it just, and just with loud noises and a cacophony building. I mean, so there is like a little bit of a fuck you, but then also his work. And again, I'm I, I'm speaking only through the research that I've done, seems to come up upon this a lot. And you see it in the film a few times where you really meditate on something, whether it's an, a piece of art or uh, or our face or an ear, you know, like uh, there there are these moments where th- he changes the language of cinema. I mean, throughout this whole film, I think that's the thing I really was impressed by the cinematography and the way that that kept you uncomfortable and that kept you uh, not on solid ground. Yeah, I mean, even just the idea that 
people are going to this movie expecting to see a space film. And he opens up on grass and water and Mm -hmm. being on the earth. Like all of these tangible things that are the opposite of space, of nature, but like this kind of surrealistic nature where it seems to like the fog is rolling in and it looks like everything sort of becoming spectral. And the nature itself doesn't like seem to add up. You see giant balloons, horses show up for no reason that we really see. Like they're kind of just there. It's an unnerving nature. And that stuff um, I don't believe is in the book. Like he added this almost like you're sitting down in the theater you're not. Ex- you're expecting to go right to space. He doesn't let you go to space. He wants to set the tone by showing you this man at home. And yeah. what the man isn't doing and isn't saying is what matters to him. That the man is like, we learn that this man, Chris, um, is like pacing his childhood vacation home of a sort. It's a thing in Russia called a dacha. Mm-hmm. And he won't look at the house, which is one of the things that kind of like creeps up on you. Like he will look at the reflection of the house in the water. He'll look at this mirror image of the house, but he won't look at the house. And when he gets inside, other people are refusing to look at the things that they don't want to look at. You know, this guy shows up knowing that he's going to go to space. Burton, um, played by uh, Vladislav uh, Dvorzeski. He knows he's going to go up to Solaris. When Burton went up to Solaris, some crazy shit went down. He wants him to watch this video of what happened. It's basically the Jodie Foster in contact scene. You know, Burton comes home from being in space. He's at a panel, a tribunal, an inquisition of people being like, you really saw a 12-foot naked baby like climb out of the space water and it was shiny. I don't believe you. By the way, it's can a scene- just, can, I, I couldn't help but think of 2001 and, 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 and like this idea of like, or 2010, this idea of the baby in space was like, my mind went there, obviously in the time, probably not creating the same thing, but it, it was just so interesting that that was the image that was spoken about. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Exactly. Like this, like, it is such a primal image, I think. And yet, like, so we're watching this testimony and it becomes like a right off the bat. It's like the ending of contact almost like Mm -hmm. here saying like, I went here. I saw this. Nobody believes me. You need to believe me. I want you to believe me. And what he has that Jodie Foster doesn't have is he has pictures of what he saw. And I thought it was so striking that when Burton, older Burton, who's watching his own testimony now on this like VCR, he won't look at his own pictures. Like he looks away from what he saw because it's too much for him. But even these pictures aren't proven as evidence. It's like when people don't want to believe something, they won't. And so none well, of the people will believe him. But don't don't you think he was embarrassed in that moment because he knew that they were just clouds? He knew that they were revealed to be just clouds. Like it would be like I have video of the murder. I have video of the murder. And they play the video and it's like a squirrel running across the lawn. Like, I mean, like he, he was a fool. I mean, that, that, that is. You think so? Well, I mean, that's what they, that's their reaction to it. Their reaction is it's just clouds. Well, yeah, that's what they say. But I, I think he knows what he saw. I think he's I, embarrassed I believe, that they won't yes. believe him. Okay. But I think what, I think in that moment he was expecting them to play back the tape and see the images that he saw. Like, you know, it, like he didn't have access. Like in my mind, it he wasn't didn't like, have the baby. He, he needed the baby. Like, I think he was so confident, like open up this suitcase and there'll be $10 million in there. And they open it up and it's like, this is just monopoly money. He's like, wait, what? Like he, I believe that he, like, I just, uh, the idea being that it wouldn't connect, but he didn't know it. So that embarrassment, I could see him just, 
It'd be like watching yourself get like tackled and break a leg as you were running for the touchdown to like win the big game. Like it's it represents a, a primal embarrassment to himself. Like wow. he didn't do I it. I saw it completely differently. Oh, I wow. saw it as like a group of people who couldn't tell themselves it could be anything else but clouds. Because they look like it looks weird. It doesn't look completely normal. And I saw it as people refusing to try to see what some, something that was really there. And mm. then him being so scared of what he did see that he didn't want to look it in the eye, like looking at the mirror and saying, you know, like, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. Like, he had such an experience, he couldn't look at it again. Huh. You know, that, I mean, I, I when I looked at it, it looked like clouds. Like, when I looked at, and I think that's, you know, to jump ahead to the end, but not to unpack the ending but i think what was so interesting about the end is that crane shot that goes up we start with a very clean idea of what we're seeing and it gets higher and higher and higher and higher and then it becomes this sea again this uh, this sea where there is little to no texture or or difference to it but as you zoom in you see it but uh most people can't see it i don't know that I felt like I was the right audience. I saw the video. I was like, that's clouds. It looks weird, but we're, we're around the planet that, you know, that looks weird. It's like, if I look at Mars, it looks weird. It doesn't mean there's a baby in Mars. Wow. When I looked at it, I was like, did he film lava? Like I was trying to figure out what it was. I was like, is that lava? Is oh, it wow. like mercury on, on top of water? Yeah. I'll defend that the hell out of you. I want to yeah. believe I, I'm here to believe. By the way, just so you know, technically, the Solaris Ocean was created with this acetone, aluminum powder, and dyes, and they uh, they kind of, you know, really tried to create something that looked incredibly uh, different. You know, I, I think the whole set design here was using uh, some basic techniques to create something uh, that you know that wasn't that hard. I mean, that's not that hard to do. That's very basic kind of. It's almost like when we talked about in Wizard of Oz, like using the uh, stocking in the wind and blowing it around. You know, it's like I think that there was a very base level of of creation there, which I love. Okay, but what did you think about Vladislav uh, Dvorsky, the guy who's playing Burton? Mm-hmm. What did you think about his face? Like, oh. I am fascinated by his face. Those huge eyes. And he looked so starved and, like, hungry and scared. I mean, he looked like how um, Rami Malek, before Rami Malek made uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, and I can't forgive him for that. Like, he looked <laughs> like how I used to look at Rami Malek and think, like, I could stare at Rami Malek's face all day before Rami Malek is doing a terrible, terrible, terrible uh, Bohemian Rhapsody movie. Well, I do think there's a couple things at play there. First of all, that seemed like a younger actor who was aged up, like they shaved his head and oh, they yeah. kind of, you know, so uh, I think that whenever you do that, there's a creepy factor to it that is just um, kind of otherworldly in a way. But also, I love this idea of the disgraced scientist warning the next person, like don't, like his life is, you know, of course his life is kind of deteriorated around him like he is a fraud he is a joke even though he is not he you know he is viewed as a laughing stock you know and, he I, and is I think Jody Foster if Matthew McConaughey didn't say I believe you right right he's a yeah a less adjusted Jody Foster and I mean I would still think that you know Jody Foster at the end of her journey going back to this um you want to have this I, fight again I know well I'm just going to say <laughs> I'm going to say that she felt 
confident enough in what she saw that I think it gave her enough to continue being who she was. Whereas this man read to me as someone who was doubting what he saw. Was it hallucination? What, you know, these, the reason why this, the psychiatrist is going up is because these men have gone crazy and they, and he's the, the first one out of the gate to prove that he'd gone crazy, you know, like that, like, so there is like a level of, am I mad? And his performance and in his look and in his, in his uh, demeanor. I, I think he firmly believed what he saw, but I do think maybe because the character looks mad himself with those eyeballs and the, Mm -hmm. the Rami Malek face that it didn't work. Like if he looked, if he looked more like, Who's the most normal looking actor on earth? Who's a person that like they would tell you something and you'd be like, yes, I believe you. Um, mm. Maybe older Tom Hanks. Maybe. Yeah, sure. Like, yeah. Maybe. I mean, he looks he looks sunken. He looks beat down by the world. Yeah. Um, he looks like he is a monk who just came out of a cave and he's like, I've seen things. Yeah. Yeah. But he looks like the opposite of how our star looks. I mean, like our yes. guy who's playing Chris, um, Donatessa Benionis. He he has that solidity at the beginning of this. Like he looks kind of thick and strong mm-hmm. and immovable. He looks yes. sad. He looks really haunted by something, but he also looks like he's not he won't think about it. Like there's something very statuesque about him. You know? Yes. Like this is a guy by the way, just to put it into context like his um kind of charisma in in star power. Uh this is a guy who, before he made Solaris, he was in a movie about kind of spies and like things, cool things happening in Russia. And a young Vladimir Putin saw that film and said, I want to be the, in the KGB. I want to be like that guy. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like the kind of strong yes. man exterior that Chris, the character of Chris seems to have that is the complete opposite of what's going on with Burton. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. There's an energy to him. Uh, any man who can wear a mesh tank top and kind of uh, tight jeans to outer space, I'm respecting. I oh, mean, there, there those is mesh uh, tank tops, man. Those are dope. Oh, that that was amazing. Um, but the like, he does have a healthy look, especially comparatively to the other people on the space station. And he is factually based. Like, he even has a line that I thought was an interesting, like callback to callback call forward. To contact her, he says, I'm not a poet, right? Like mm. when Jodie Foster's yes. like, I wish they had sent a poet. He's like, I am not a poet. I have a concrete goal. Which I think makes him a more interesting character for the journey he's about to go on, right? Because we need to buy into the fact that something is actually happening, right? Like, And this whole movie is about exposing who you are to the outside world. Like his internal is becoming external. And when that happens, how does that possess your life? And I think there's a part of him that is truly happy. Whereas the other two cosmonauts and and even our first one, uh, who is back on earth, we don't know. We don't know what they're dealing with in the book. Um, snout, And the book, by the way, is very different than the film. Uh, The author of the book kind of hates the film. He's like, I did not write about erotic misadventures in outer space. But um, in the book, Snout is 
chasing a murder. Like he's murdering someone every night. Uh, actually, he's murdering a black woman every night, according to uh, what I did. Yeah. Um, and so a much darker idea. And like, and as far as everybody else, we don't know what they're dealing with. I mean, we just see elements of it. We hear elements of it. We see, but we don't know what emotionally is happening. We, we see that, I don't know if it was a child or a little person who kind of escapes from the room in the beginning. We we see the cosmonaut who killed himself. We understand that he was doing something. We don't understand like what that yeah. girl represented to him. Like there's a lot of, um, there seems to be a lot of strife in the relationships, but in his relationship, he actually seems to be thriving in it. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Part of me almost wishes we had a little bit more knowledge about whatever is happening. It felt like when we get glimpses of what the other people are seeing, you know, let's just like kind of lay out who's on the ship when he arrives, right? Because he's going up there. He knows there's going to be three men. One of them is supposedly like his good friend. Like he's going to get up there and he's going to see his friend Gabarian. But when he arrives, he learns immediately that Gabarian has just killed himself. Um, Then the two other men up there, he doesn't know. One of them is named Snout, who's sort of friendly. He's like, come back. I'll tell you what's happening. Come back in an hour. Uh, Come back later on tonight. Come back the next day. Like, he's a little avoidant about it. And then there is Sartorius, who's more hostile. And as soon as Chris gets up there, he's like, you're a loafer. And he's, like, very cynical about everything that's happening. Right. And then these men have their own guests. But we don't really get to see them. Like, we know that Snout has somebody in there that he doesn't want Chris to meet, and we see their ear, and that's all we get. Yeah. And then we see um, Sartorius have um, what looks like a, a smaller actor kind of like run out of the room, and then he shoves him back in really rudely, and we never see that that actor again. And I really want to know what's up with that actor. And we yeah. know that Gabarian had like a girl in a blue nightie with bells on, like literally bells on, who's sort of wandering through the plane, and she walks up to his corpse, and we don't really see her again. There's an element of this movie that feels like you're in a crack den, right? Like everyone is experiencing the same thing, but is very evasive and uh, and and trying to keep their space from everybody else. And I think they got private in their shame. Yes, and I think yeah. when when uh, Kelvin comes in, I think the two remaining scientists are feeling like you're going to wreck my fun or you're going to wreck what I'm experiencing here and I don't want you to do it. But I would say that where Snout comes off as being evasive in the beginning, he's like, no, 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 no. Let's talk once you experience it because I can't tell you what 
is happening until you understand what is happening because you're going to think I'm crazy. And so I actually came to really enjoy the way that Snout is in this film because Snout to me is his, he's guiding him through. He's a comeback after you sleep because he knows at night this is when these visions appear. And then so these men are interacting with these visions that are creating some sort of anxiety or recreating some part of their life with them every night. So they're up all night. Then they, during the day, they are, you know, the station looks completely destroyed. It looks, again, like like a crack den. It's, these men can't do their work because they are dealing with whatever. And I'm going to say guilt or I'm going to say loss. I, I think it's hard because we don't know. We only know what Kelvin is dealing with. And, and I think he's dealing with getting back the love of his life. Who is in the love of his life? Who is what we find out to be a visitation, a guest from this planet who is manifesting it, itself in his imagination or the planet is taking what uh, Kelvin knows of his former love and creating a version of this love. And and it's the same way that I couldn't help but think about contact and the way that Jodie Foster sees her father at the end. It's not her father, but yet it is her father. Where here, the line is a little bit more blurred because it is the version of the person that you know. And that also brings up a whole other question of like, is the person that you love or the person that you know a full person or is it just the way that you view them? You know, it's yeah. like obviously you don't know you don't know what's going on fully in someone else's mind. You only know how you view that person. Yeah, I really want to dig into that because like the Hari that's created, you know, um played by uh, Natalia Bondarchuk who was like yeah. 1920 when she made this film mm-hmm. and was great. And is actually the person who even gave Tarkovsky the copy of Solaris and was like this is interesting, you should think about this. Um that character, how she's first introduced, is, like, really kind of passive and mm-hmm. helpless and, like, very weak. Like, very yes. weak in a way that I was really wrestling with. You know, like, trying to make sense of the, her weakness. Like, she can't even undo her own dress. And then, like, he has to cut well, the dress but, off of her. Oh, wait. You know what? I had a thought about that, though. I mean, okay. Just th- what I loved about that dress moment was that was... The way that you would envision, like if I saw the love of my life in an outfit, I don't know how it hooks or it straps. I just know that there might be ties there. So when he gets to her dress, like his mind hasn't envisioned how to unhook it. There's no way to unhook it because he never looked at it. So it it really is the manifestation of a dream. It's like it's or a picture like, you know, it's like you only have enough information. It's not like it's creating a fully 3D, it's only as much as you have seen. So I like that to me, that moment was so cool because it showed everything that you needed to know in, in just a, uh, a piece of costuming. No, it's true. It's true. The, the practical part of my brain was like, before you know that her dress will be replicated every time she comes back to life, I was like, he's going to make it so she can't wear the one dress she bought on this ship. Like, that's terrible. Poor thing. Well, I mean... That but, image, though, is what he's yeah. remembering, right? That, that yeah. one, yeah. That, but even like, whatever, so, yeah. but even right. so the, fact that, the fact that whether or not he can open the dress, the fact that she asks him to do it because she seems very right. helpless, right? Mm-hmm. She's like, she comes across, especially at the beginning, as such like a, a helpless character. She's very like pitiful and kind of like sad and like, I need your help and you can't leave me alone. 
And and to me, that only makes sense if he's like remembering just the bad parts about her and the weakness yes. of her and her well, fragility. Yes. That like she, you know, he left her. She killed herself like she, in, on real life, the real person. Mm-hmm. She like injected herself with like a poison. And this version of her still has the scar on her arm for where she did that. And so, yeah, the idea that he remembers this girl only in like the guilt and her weakness, I think, like helped me make sense of it. Because at first I was like, why is this character so drippy? You know, especially right. after like rewatching Alien. Like, why is she such a like a, a, a weak person? And I had to try to make an argument to myself for like what is going on and what does her weakness say about how we remember the people and how we remember the how we interacted to them and what we're scared of in our memories of them, which is he's scared of her hurting herself again. Yeah. And so that's the part of her he recreates. Well, and you know, there was another part about this that I really related to. There is a show that I was on the pilot of, um, and it wasn't a great show, but the premise was amazing. It was called Reigns, and it was Jeff Goldblum as a private detective. And what he would do is um, he would go to the scene of the crime, and what he would see, the character would appear to him and speak to him. So he'd solve crimes with the murdered person. But as he learned more information about the murdered person, the murder victim would change and evolve. They become oh, three dimensional. It was a really cool idea. And um, like, that's what's kind of happening here is like, there's two things at play, right? Because it's like, I feel like the aliens on this planet think they're doing a good job or a good thing. We're giving you something to, like, we're reaching out to you with love, like like the same way in contact. We're giving you your father. We're giving you this. But they're not realizing the implications of giving you back this loss or this, you know, moment to, let's say, fix something in your life that you feel is broken, right? Whatever that is. Oh, that's um, interesting you see it that way and not as oh, like torture, see, you know, that, like as a weapon because it happens after they bombard the ocean. And, well, I mean, you could, yeah. I mean, I guess you could say like the aliens are trying to figure out how to communicate with them. Yeah. And that's why I think they want to hook up his brainwaves to, to shoot it back at them to be like, no, 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 this is actually causing us great pain. And then they stop. They're, oh, okay. And they like, I think that they understand like that's you're you're breaking us um, to a certain extent. That's at least the way I saw it. Oh, that's interesting. I could see it that way. I, I think my maybe I'm just like in a hostile frame of mind, but I was like, they are fighting back by driving these men insane, and then only when they realize that these men don't have hostile intentions, that they're just trying to figure out the planet themselves. Will they relax? It's interesting because, like, it's the same text, but you and I just come at it with such different POVs. Right. And that's what I think is interesting about it, to, like, talk and chew. And yeah, debate. because I think what I what I love about the aliens that we saw in Contact in here is they are, in many ways, empaths that don't understand emotion, if that makes sense. Like, So the idea being, like, they understand that the only way they can connect with you is through this thing that reverberates through your body, but yet they have not, they don't deal with emotion the same way that we do. So they don't understand the power that they are wielding. And in a weird way, the most destructive thing you can do, it's not lasers, it's not bombs, it's bombarding someone with overwhelming emotion. 
And when I look at this film, especially under the lens or through the lens of like death and mourning, I think so many people, when they experience that, um, and I know, you know, we've both had different versions of this in our lives. Like you, all you want sometimes is to have that person back, right? All I want is this, all I want is that. And one of the hardest things to do is I think to move forward, you're taking a piece of that person with you, but they're not, it's a, it's a hard battle, right? It's this hard battle of like, what, what would that person would have wanted? What do you want? What like, you know, what, what do we need? And I think there's a, there's a, the element of like, the drug analogy here is actually very strong. It's like it satiates something, but it stops any momentum. It, it, like it actually it freezes you in, in time and in a moment. And the station, everything stops. Everything stops after, you know, it's gotten worse and worse yeah. uh, because they, they simply are, are paralyzed because they, they, are, they are addicted to the drug of their own wants and desires or, or grief or, you know, and and that's a hard thing to say, like you want grief, but I think there's this balance of like what you want and what you think will make you better, but it actually is not helping you at all. Well, it's funny because when you make it personal like that, then the analogy that makes this film kind of click over in a different way to me is, you know, it happens fairly often that I have a dream with my dad in it. You know, my dad passed away. And when my dad shows up in my dreams, like part of me wants to believe that that's like actually him visiting me and like Mm -hmm. catching up, like, how's it going? But also the logical part is that it is probably my brain recreating him and what he would say. So I'm getting this like memory version of my dad that visits me in my dreams. And so we actually, as metaphorical and wild and out there as Solaris seems, that's actually something I think a lot of us experience all the time, even if it's not a dead person. Like I had a, I had a dream last night with Bo Burnham in it. Like, I don't know Bo Burnham, but I'm like creating fictional versions of him that react in a different way. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I think a lot of the times we're working something out, right. And we, you know, our dream represents, when you say like, Oh, Amy, I had a dream about you. It's more about me, but you're representing something in me that's allowing myself to, interact with that right Have on some level you had a level. dream about me I did no uh, but you know <laughs> but like but like that idea like you know like I think that there's always those ideas where you tell people like oh my god in my dream you did x y and z and I think what people don't realize is that they're not revealing something about you you weren't in mm-hmm. their dream they were in their dream acting as you because you represent something and I think that that's that is kind of what he's dealing with like he's seeing this woman as weak because he saw her as this, oh, she's so fragile. She's so, she's falling apart. And what he kind of does, she becomes more sentient than anyone else, right? Like, like he actually does have a second chance with her and empowers her so much that the alien, I think, starts to understand like, oh, I'm, this is like, this, is this too heady of an idea? Like, that the alien comes to connect with them on an emotional level, but because he cares for her and he's not like shunning her away, he's bringing her out into the light. He's embracing her in front of other people that she comes to understand like what love and respect is. Cause it is an alien entity too. It's not just like, it's not just a mirage. And that alien is like, Oh my God, the alien goes back and says, I writes the letter and says, my God, we're f- like, this is bad. Like I know now I can tell you that this is bad. And 
And that to me was really interesting because like he almost remedies her or his relationship with her. And in doing that, that connection solves the problem. You're right. It's it's almost like the her ending, right? Yes. Yes. Right. Where you, mm-hmm. a thing has blossomed to life, you know, that was not human, but has become right. human. And then in becoming human, realizes the relationship is unhealthy for both people. Right. And and this is a, this is a, this is a world of scientists who are saying we must destroy. We must use the annihilator. We must beam our brainwaves to them. We must do it. And, and instead what they should have been doing is embracing these people and showing them who they are. Because I think he's the only one, like, like we said, like we don't see uh, Sartorius and Snout's companions or their guests. We don't understand. We don't really even tr- truly understand uh, Gabrielis's or whatever. His, you know, girl with the bells on, we don't know. And they all were in shame. They were all in shame of that moment. And where Kelvin might have had shame that his ex committed suicide instead of just trying to kill her again or use Which he her does again. do at least oh, once in the uh, Looney of course, Tunes. Of course, like He yes. tries to blast her off into space without even, he's like, Get in the rocket. I mean, it's a complete yes. like wily coyote moment. Oh, I mean, it's hilarious. And and uh, but yes, I mean, and of course, it's it's Groundhog Day to a certain extent too, mm-hmm. right? It's like he's learning. It actually, wow, there's some more com- comparisons there. But there's this idea like the way that they actually communicate through to the aliens is by connecting to them on an emotional level, not by using the annihilator, not by you know. And that was that uh, to me is really interesting. But but also. I mean, not again, not to jump all the way to the end, but to go like, and it makes the end incredibly fascinating because he chooses to live in a world that he can make right or live in a world that he can do a redo in instead of living in a world that would actually challenge him or, or, or is that maybe love? Is that love for these aliens? Like, does he go into that world because he actually fell in love and, and whether it's the personification of his dad or his wife or whoever it is like that, he's figured out the, the, the love language of these aliens. I don't know. I, that ending is very interesting. Like, cause he gets so far, but then he goes back. Right. The ending is you think that he escaped and he's back home. Cause he's looking at that same body of water from the yes. beginning, but now it's frozen over. And you think that maybe he has returned home because that's sort of what she wants him to do. You know, Mm -hmm. she doesn't want to hold him there prisoner for her when she knows she's not real. And so you think like, good, he went home. He sees his dad. Maybe he's going back to, you know, what I think is like the source of whatever originally made him a person who wasn't a good partner to her. Like whatever, we don't know exactly what happened in his childhood, but the fact that he's like there you know, he sees his mom sometimes in the ship. Something went down where he feels like he's a colder person capable of walking away, right? Well, there's some, I mean, there's that, something that, he has to fix. That mom moment is fascinating, right? Because mm-hmm. the mom moment comes kind of a, late in the third act, right? It's kind of right before the, the movie is over. What do you think he's dealing with in that moment there? I want to, like, that's the one I'm, I'm, like, is that the the moment that, he gets, he finally gets love from her when she washes his wounds and, and that he's, and that's what he's always been looking for. And maybe that's what would allow him to connect again. And then he wants to do a do-over with his dad and, and cause he's already done a do-over with his wife. Like he wants to fix everything. Yeah. Or be healed. Like, cause he's hurt and his mom is healing him, right? She's sort of washing 
his wounds, like this idea right. of, have you ever accepted that maternal love or were you ever given it? Maybe mm-hmm. like, did you ever get that love that made you feel whole all the way up where you felt like you could be a stronger, better person yourself? Yeah. I don't know if that's about what it, what it is about, but that's an interpretation to me that makes sense. Like he is broken. And at this point he's very broken. Like he, I don't even know so much if he loved Hari, but he just feels like he screwed it up, you know? And I don't know if he even loves this Hari, but he doesn't want to be such a screw up. And I think like he will always, he will always feel like he's failing until he goes deeper. I mean, it's like attachment theory, right? Like you, you fall for people who remind you of the things that you didn't have with your parents and you try to fix right. them. But let me bring this to you. We all live with regrets. They could be the smallest things from how you were in middle school to something that you did as an adult to that we all have regrets. And if someone gave you a chance to go back through every one of those regrets and to change them, to make them or fix them in some way, would that be an opportunity that you take? Um. Oh, gosh. I, have a, I have an answer to this, but I want to hear yours as well. So I'll, I'll go to you first here. I mean, I feel like people live in one of three time periods, right? Like okay. there's people who live in the present and that's sort of the ideal, right? Like you're aware of what's happening to you as it's happening. You can appreciate the good. You can work through the bad. You work through your emotions in real time. Mm-hmm. And I think then there's people who live in the future, which mm-hmm. is more me. Like you're anxious about the things that have not yet happened. How can you right. prevent them? What can you be doing now for future you? Like I live a lot for future me and trying to make her life better. And then there's the people who live in the past where it is like about like regret. What did I do wrong? If only I could go back or I wish I could fix this or why did I do that? And I've always been really happy that whatever the inborn switch is that I think puts people on one of three tracks, you know, two sort of unhealthy ones and one good one. Mm-hmm. I'm at least glad I'm not on the the, the past track because that seems really hard to deal with. It seems really hard. That seems like the toughest one, the toughest burden to bear. Yeah. I, and I, I so, think... yeah, I think I couldn't, I, I know that for, I've, the hard things I've been through, I feel lucky in that I feel okay today. Like I don't mm-hmm. feel like there is a switch where I took the wrong track completely. Right. So. I That's actually a really good point. Where are you right now? And I wonder if your answer to that question is is based on where you are. For for me, I'll answer the question first and say, I am the sum total of my rejections, my embarrassments, my successes, my failures. Like everything, I, I always say that everything brought me to this moment, good and bad. And if I didn't have those downs, I wouldn't necessarily be as cognizant of some of the things that I'm most proud of too. Yeah. Right. That's and, true. you know, and I, and I think I do, I run, I run on three tracks. I'm constantly changing between all three. Right. Um, I don't live purely in the past. I don't live purely in the future. And I, and I definitely, uh, don't live purely in the present, but I, I, I spend a lot of time on all of them and, uh, equal, equal time. Um, cause there will be moments where I will flash to something that happened to me in sixth grade and be like, Oh my God, I'm so fucking embarrassed by that. And I have trouble letting go of that stuff. And I think that that's uh, part of the root of what Scientology offers, which is really appealing to people, which is like, you're going to go back 
and and clean yourself of these things. You're going to release these moments, you know, um, instead of incorporate them, you're going to literally like scrub them out. You're going to scrub the stains off the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least that's my interpretation of it from the things that I've read and the people I've talked to. Um which is, I think, very appealing to people. And I think that that's what he's doing in this movie is like at the end, he's like, well, I'd rather live the life where I go and make right and then I'll be happy. But he's there's nothing to be happy with because those aren't the real people. Those aren't the real rea- relationships. And yeah, he might become a better person. But I think the act of really becoming a better person is how you affect the next person when you realize that you made a mistake, instead of just reliving the mistake or fixing the mistake, going back and and not doing it again is more triumphant than fixing the one in the past. I don't know. That that's where I'm wrestling. I know it's a it's a, a lot of stuff to to think about and you know, and I don't I know that everyone's answer might be different, but that's how I that kind of feel. And that's why I kind of feel like at the end of the movie he takes it's beautiful, but it's also sad. Because he's literally on an island of his own emotions. And I think, forget the spaceship, you can be on an island of your own emotions in a house in the country. And I think about that a lot at the end of the movie. I'm like, that's someone who becomes an introvert because they're blank died and they don't leave the house and they've changed. And like, that's what he's agreeing to. He's agreeing to, I am locking myself here. And I refuse to grow. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, I really love everything that you said. And it has me thinking that I think why I admire this film more than I emotionally connect to it has nothing to do with the film itself. It has only to do with me, which Mm -hmm. is that for better or worse, being future brain means when something is past, I actually don't dwell on it very much because there's nothing I can do about it. And I kind of turn a switch off, Mm -hmm. which is for me harmful because there's probably growth if you can think about something more. But like when something bad happens, I'm very much like, well, that happened. Awful. On to the next, you know? And and so a film that is about about wrestling with the past is not something that I think I, I connect to on a very, very deep level just because of how I'm wired, but it's something I find really interesting to watch. And I like that this film makes an argument for making me want to wrestle a little bit more with the past. Do you know, even though it doesn't work yeah. out for him necessarily, to watch that character of Chris come to life, to go from one version of numb to a version of all emotion, and then back to to some sort of muddy in between, because he's not happy at the end either to be walking through this world. Yeah. and, and But to at least make an argument for pain being good is, I think, valuable. I mean, because we are to understand that when he makes the agreement to go to space, he is never going to see his father again, right? Like that's that. Like regardless of what his mission is, what what we what we don't know is that 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 trip will be too long for him to return to Earth when his dad will be alive. That's why he's burning his belongings. He's basically committing suicide, you know, by, by burning everything that he doesn't need. You know, he's going up there, and he knows that when he comes back, or at least that's my interpretation of it. When he comes back. The world will change and yeah. he'll have to start fresh. He's right? not so leaving himself anything to come back for. And is he regretting that he left true connections behind after he's been 
invigorated by this connection that he has there. And so like his want is I'd rather live in a world of people that I love than go back to a cold world where the old version of him, and maybe I now I'm switching my point of view on the end, where the old version of him was like, oh, I can come back to a cold world because I don't care. I'm, I'm emotionless. But then when his mom reaches out to him, he's like, no, I need to go back to surround. I'd rather surround myself with people I love than try to start over. I mean, what's your gut reaction to the, like, is this ending sad or beautiful? Can it be both? Like, you know, if I you think had it's... to pick one, if you had to pick one, I just want to know. Okay. Sad. It's I'm... sad to me because he learned something and now he's not going to share it with the world. Like right. he learned something about himself, even if it's about himself, it's like he didn't learn like, you know, math or anything, but he like, and, and, and the fact that he's not going to actually share that with real people. But then that's also saying, well, are the aliens not real? Well, they are real. They just manifest themselves in this way. Like this entity manifests itself as an ocean, but is it an ocean? It's a, it, so there are these relationships fake. I like, that's the other part of it that I haven't quite determined. I think when, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going, well, he's agreeing to live with these aliens. And and communicate with them. So maybe that is a beautiful ending. But when I think of it as him living in his head, I think it's sad. So I think it's about where do you fall on that. And if you and, and that's why I'm torn. If the aliens are real, which we know they are, they're neutrino-based life forms, then he is Christopher Columbus. He's exploring in this new world of these aliens and he is the one he is the only one that can do that like that has gone and 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 entered into the world so maybe he's the reason why at one point we actually not harness the power of solaris but open up the world of solaris so maybe in that way it's a beautiful ending but i think when i watched it last night i was like this is so sad but now i'm like oh he is the ultimate explorer that's true like you're right because i find it sad but to only find it sad means shortchanging the fact that the aliens of solaris are actively interested in learning and having a better relationship with him, right? So he's like the first space probe. You're being like, okay, okay. I'm like, maybe this territory is okay. Like it's, I mean, I want to, maybe it's the part of me that wants like the heroic ending. It wants him to have the bravery that Burton does to come home and say, I saw this. I need you to know what I've learned. But right. he doesn't do it. And that's fine. And I, 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 I know that that is fine. And let me add one more like thing to this. Maybe my reasoning for the ending being sad is because, and I know this is a Russian film, but I'm going to say like the very Western idea of like, we must conquer the aliens. And what he's deciding to do is going, I'm going to emotionally commune with the aliens. I, I was seeing it as one-sided, but the aliens, like if they, he knows, he knows the agreement that he's making. He's not under, he doesn't think it's his dad. He knows it's not Harry. And I think one of the things about his conversations with Harry is that he's helping Harry and, and Harry's helping him. So this idea that like he, he emotionally is solving a problem is actually a beautiful idea. Like it's, it's almost the inverse of, you know, like where Jodie Foster's character is all about uh, science and stuff like this, you know, like he is a really about emotion. He's almost like the Matthew McConaughey character. He's going down there. He's like, I am a psychiatrist. I'm a psychologist. I'm going to, I'm going to work on that level. So there is something really, I hesitate to say it to make it the East versus West, but there's something more Eastern in that point of view. Like it's not about winning. It's about actually meeting this other creature. It's true. And that's why I think it's really interesting to talk about, 
I mean, this film, when it came out, was framed as, like, the anti-2001. Mm-hmm. Um, that, like, in the extreme simplification, that, like, 2001 is all brain and this one is all heart. Mm-hmm. Like, one is the Tin Man and one is the um, Scarecrow. Yeah. Um, and I think that I appreciate what this film did for where sci-fi goes next. You know, that because I do think that a lot of sci-fi can get too cerebral or that the audiences can expect that too much of the cerebral out of it. They're like mostly interested in the how, you know, the whole culture of like videos of like the nine things wrong with this, like, Oh, right, the right, loopholes, right. Oh, the plot holes, whatever, like looking for the, how things work. I appreciate that in this movie several times, Chris looks at Harry and he's like, how, how, how he asks her how hev- several times. And she just ignores him and never even bothers to try to answer it. And then I think it's, um, I think it's now, who says later, you know, they're having that debate where, where, Sn- where Snout says, you know, like humans have lost our sense of the cosmic and that the ancients would never ask why. And he uses the example of Sisyphus that like when you tell the story of Sisyphus, nobody is like, OK, but why does the rock fall down? Like why? Well, who's making is there like a is there like a monster inside the rock or is like like somebody adding goo to the hill? Like what's going wrong? And right. it just that we look at Sisyphus as the metaphor that it is and his story. And here's very Sisyphus. Like, can he keep her alive? No. Every night it like rolls back down and he can't keep her alive. Um And so I appreciate that this film is kind of like the counterweight to the plot hole driven, here's what's wrong with this type of sci-fi filmmaking that I think keeps us from going places in space. Well, let's, let's see, let's break it down and go two steps forward and go, I see so many similarities with this and Inception, Mm -hmm. right? Inception, a very similar idea, like, you know, um, and how does it all work you know, they give you like a little bit, they give you like a 10 second explanation of like, all right, you go through the worlds, but yeah, or a looper, you, I'm drawing it and like, all right, whatever, let's just move on. Exactly. But you see where it doesn't work in a film like Tenet, right? Like Tenet's like, they literally say in Tenet, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but so it's not literally, uh, but they say in Tenet, like, don't, don't worry, you won't understand this, you know, just to get to where they want to get to. So I think there's this, this middle ground where, I think Tennant is less emotional than, and I think Nolan is ultimately less emotional than this movie is. And I think that Inception probably walks the best line, like of being boundary breaking and embracing, like the not getting in the in, in the in the sauce of it. You know, like we were talking about Nolan and like Interstellar being too much schmaltzy, uh, Tennant being too not not enough schmaltzy. Inception being right, just the right amount where, you know, I think it, it's a fine this line to Nolan walk. This Nolan is too schmaltzy. This <laughs> Nolan is not enough schmaltzy. But I mean, right. It's like there is, there is a, there is a Goldilocks yeah. and the three Nolans with this. It's like, you know, cause it is, there is something about when and it Goldilocks works and when and it the doesn't. Three Nolans. I love that. <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, I think like if I want to add like a retroactive thing that I'm struggling with Solaris, it's that I think this is so many of our filmmakers touchstone movie. Maybe mm-hmm. not their favorite, but their touchstone. Like, I want to do a Solaris-style thing. And I think what they've taken from it is the trope that is my one of my least favorite tropes of all, which is like, here we are in space, or here we are doing a crazy thing, but we're only talking about a dead person from the past. You right. know, dead wife, dead baby, dead wife, dead baby, dead wife, dead baby. Like, so many of our big space movies that could be about something epic, I feel like are leaning on this 
idea and just kind of making the same movie over and over again, but making it weaker, you know, like Gravity or Mm -hmm. Ad Astra, even First Man. And I, I get really frustrated with that as the takeaway from this, because I'm like, isn't space enough? Like space itself raises questions that I want people to look at emotionally. You're comparing, say, like, I'm Ryan Gosling, I'm on the moon, I'm thinking about my daughter, but like... I am more attuned to the emotions of Jodie Foster being in space and being like the act of being in space gives me the emotional thrill that is bigger than me thinking about what's at home. I'm not saying I'm mad at Solaris for this. I'm saying like, I think it set up an idea that to be in space, you have to think about somebody dead is so limiting. And maybe that's why as I love an emotionally driven space movie, but the emotionally driven space movies I like aren't the ones that take this plot point of Solaris and rework it. It's the ones that use the act of being in space to go to a deep emotional level. I'm thinking about like Sunrise, right? Where you're right. in you're in space, but being in space is about thinking about your own mortality and and the fate of where you're headed. Or a film like Anayara. It's a Swedish film that came out a few years ago which is probably the most depressing space movie ever made. And yet it's wonderful. Everybody who's seen Aniara becomes like a big Aniara hive member of it. Like where you're on, Aniara in short is about you're on a ship um, that's supposed to just be like a commuter flight to Mars and something goes wrong. And how do you deal with a trip that's much longer than you expected? Um, But that idea that I think is intrinsic to being in space itself carries so much more emotional weight with me than like dead family member back at home. Like I said, it's a crutch. It's a crutch that, uh, you know, look, Arrival, I really enjoyed Arrival, and I thought Arrival did it really well. Um, But how many times can we go to that same? Well, it's a guaranteed emotion. But what about the people who don't have that? You know, there's a comment in in the Discord where they were talking about, well, wouldn't it have been more interesting if Jodie Foster had a family? And I said, well, I think it would make her, and and I'm, I'm not saying that I would find her less sympathetic, but I think it would complicate the movie because, oh, well, she wants to leave her children behind. Like then how, what kind of monster is that? You know, mm-hmm. who, you know, and look, I, I'm going to see yeah. as a, you know, I can also say that probably a lot of parents would not want to risk their own lives if there was if there was no reason to right like i could see that and i think they showed that in the movie that the guy's like oh yeah i don't want to do this i gotta be with my family um i wonder how you could create a different level of guilt that feels like it's because i think what we're doing is sorry to get so long-winded and say this i think that you can't deny that a dead spouse and a dead child have weight but there can be other things that can exist inside of you that are not that and it may be even harder to convey but it may also be harder to explain like so say if you like that the idea that snout every night killed this woman like what's that story that's a fucking dark story what what happened in his life but is that sympathetic and i don't know if you can make it sympathetic and i think you know part of this sci-fi world is like can you sell it as a romance because no one really wants to make sci-fi so you're constantly chasing this idea of like what can connect us what can emotionally connect us even though there are some darker things that i think would make uh i don't know yeah make some more uh more interesting choices i mean to me a dead kid thing just feels like gilding a lily in a lot mm-hmm. of these because it's yeah. like you are doing something beyond awesome. You right. know, the act of going away and saying goodbye to the planet, right? Mm-hmm. And if there were as many like 
young hot astronauts with dead kids and dead wives, like in reality, as there are in space movies, like, of course, we'd have to move to Mars because like the entire ground of Earth would be like covered in cemeteries. Right. There's just it, it's become such a trope that I'm just absolutely sick to death of it because I, I think it's unnecessary. But when it but when it's done in this movie, I don't feel it like that. So maybe well, no, what, what's the difference? Early, yeah, but because it's early. It's I think I think it it is working with that idea. And then I think like a lot of our modern filmmakers just love him and they're reworking it too. They just want to do it like he did it. I, I'm thinking about somebody like Alex Garland, right? Because you watch mm-hmm. this movie and you're like, oh, I see where all of Alex Garland comes from. Like, you know, like yeah. Hari talking about I'm human. I want to be human. Like. All of that just goes straight into ex machina. You know, like who is human? What is the line of being human? Like what is what we're dealing with? Like how is that influencing us to want to see things as human? All of that. It's like pure this. And if if people out there like an Annihilation and they are like, this movie is great, like I then you need to watch uh, Tarkovsky's Stalker. And you'll be like, oh, okay, this is just Annihilation. Like he made this movie as well. Like he's basically well, just... He's taking well, yeah. what he loves of them. I'm not calling them like cheap copies, but I'm saying no, yeah. it's like that documentary on the Sparks band that's coming out. How it's like, yeah. you know, this band where it's like, here's your favorite band's favorite band. Like mm-hmm. Tarkovsky is your favorite cerebral sci-fi director's favorite cerebral sci-fi director. And once you know right. what to look for, then you see him everywhere. Well, but here's what I'll argue with uh, Annihilation. And I and I have not seen Stalker. So, and what Stalker's I like about great. Stalker's great. Uh, like Stalker's uh, you know, my favorite. If you think this film could get weirder, then you'll like Stalker. Okay, so an Annihilation, you know, uh, not to totally unpack that film, but that dealt with like depression mm-hmm. and grief and wrestling with that part of you. I think that final battle inside the lighthouse was an amazing representation of this thing, and obviously based on a book. But I think they actually. I'm someone who gets tired of like dead kid, get dead wife. And I think that that movie did a better job of, of, I guess a more steady hand. Oh, there's uh, a like, dead you know, kid in that too, right? Uh, no, it's it just her wife? husband. It's, uh, dead it's her, husband. it's a dead, dead husband. Uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> and it, I, I, I guess, people. I know, I guess it's like the only grief that we yeah. find acceptable, you know, uh, on some level, which is a whole other thing to unpack. Can't you just be sad? People are just well, sad. Like, uh, why do we need an yeah. extra thing well, to be sad? Well, that, I know that's that, but I think that people. This is like the overexplaining of it. Um, and look, I don't. You're right. I, you're I, right. I, it is the overexplaining. It is like we need a reason to be sad. Why is I, the sad? How is I, the sad? I have not seen Solaris, but I guarantee you that you mean, the you mean the, the no no I have not seen Solaris the, the Steven Soderbergh remake oh, of yeah. it. Sorry, sorry, but I guarantee you. In that movie, and I don't know if you have seen it, there are plenty of scenes of them on Earth uh, that either start the movie or or are in like they're not going to they're not going to exist in the idea of like not showing you that he lost his wife before he goes and and, and showing you that relationship. Like, I just guarantee you, like, they're going to over explain it. We're here. Like, she basically has to pull out the picture and be like, that's me. I'm your wife. I'm t-. Like, you know, like, you know, it, it's. There's something really interesting about that, like the idea like um, that you can allow, you know, you don't need to see it. We don't need to see it. And I think maybe like that lack of explanation, I think Annihilation does that pretty well, too, for the most part. Okay, you know what? Let's let's watch the trailer then for the Clooney Solaris. Let's watch it. When you want to get hitched, (laughs) you keep putting this off 15 or 20 years. I'm just going to stop asking. You know, you're with the right man. Your wife. She's dead. 
Sometimes love is so strong, it opens a passageway to a place where the impossible can happen. How did you get here? I love you so much. From the creator of What's Titanic wrong? and the director of Traffic That's and Aaron Brogovich. You're dreaming, Barbara. This November. How far She's will you go alive. for a second chance? You found me. I came for you. This is my chance. You don't know what you're in for. Go back. Go back to Earth. You'll die here. You're being manipulated. We are not taking her with us. Are you going to stop me from taking her back? Okay, so I understand. <laughs> I understand that it's a different movie and you have to sell things in a different way, but this is really making it like the idea of what you said when love is so strong, it finds a passageway back. It's not when grief is so strong, you know, it, it, you know, it opens you up to being vulnerable to attack, I guess. I mean, that's really, really, or, you know, I mean, and again, I don't know what this movie is, but that's, I think what they're dealing with, right? This idea that like grief is, his grief manifests this thing like if I mean, he didn't he have can. that grief you know you call I mean, it like there are it. a lot of scenes from that trailer on earth of them talking yeah. in real time which we never have in the actual solaris no. i mean i like i saw i started laughing the minute i saw that i was like yeah of course there you go yeah, of course see them on earth like i i did look at the youtube comments just now mm-hmm. and people in the youtube comments are like this is the worst trailer ever the film is nothing like this so i want to okay. give the film the benefit of the doubt because i haven't seen it but that trailer look, is very different and it it actually, yes, it is produced by James Cameron, who wanted to remake it, um, but then he got really busy, so Soderbergh did it instead. And by the way, if I'm going to trust anybody with Solaris, I'm going to trust uh, Steven Soderbergh. I mean, I, I, I'm all, I'm all in. I'm a, uh, I'm a Soderbergh stand. So I, I also believe that like a studio could get that movie back. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. And then have to like figure out some way to make it that. So I, I'm, I'm down to watch that at one point. But yeah, I am interested in like this generation of people who are so influenced by him in this film. It, it almost feels like like looking at this film after seeing these uh, directors' body of work feels like kind of discovering like a the body snatcher or something at the center of it. Like, aha, I understand you now that I, you know, have seen and talked about this right. film. Um, although like when Tarkovsky would give advice to young filmmakers... It's kind of ridiculous. I want to play you this like Russian interview with Tarkovsky of him like talking. He's picture this. He's in like jeans and a denim jacket. And he looks like he's a in a Calvin Klein ad talking to this journalist. He's young. He's skinny. He's got his black mustache. Can you do a Russian accent, Paul? Because I want you just to like read uh, what I'll he says in the subtitles. All right. All right, okay. Great. All right. Let's go. It's strange to see directors that take their work as a special position given to them by destiny and simply exploit their profession that is, they live in one way but make movies about something else. And I like to tell directors, especially young ones, that they should be morally responsible for what they do while making their films. Do you understand? It is the most important Secondly, they should be prepared for the thought that cinema is very difficult and a serious art. It requires sacrificing of yourself. You shouldn't belong to it and it should not belong to you. Sorry for my Russian accent. But uh, but I think that there is something... Uh, 
there's something really interesting about the way he views himself. Like he's taking himself off a pedestal and maybe that want not to be the coolest allows him to almost be the most vulnerable. I mean, that's what I think that that's what these directors are chasing. When you look at somebody like Soderbergh when you look at somebody like Cameron and you look at somebody like Nolan, these are all directors who are saying, I want to remake Solaris or I want to do my version of Solaris. And I would argue all three of those directors lack the emotional depth in their films. And that's a very, and I think Soderbergh probably the least of that and the the other two more. They are, they're, their films are always cool, are always interesting, are always bold, but they often, I don't think any of them could make this movie because it is, this is a movie that exists in silences and long meditative things. And I think the reason why it works is because you are in those moments. And, and, I'm, and that's a gross generalization, again, of, of these directors, but I would say that the emotional depth that this movie has, that ability to wallow in this is something that I don't think isn't the strong suit of any of those three guys. Would you agree with that? I mean, I want to see James Cameron Solaris the same way that I'm like, what the hell is Chloe Zhao going to do with Eternals? Like we were talking right. about last week. Like, but we've I'm seen very Cameron curious. attempt, yeah. we've seen him attempt the, like a love story, right? And we've seen him attempt. And nail it in the case of Titanic. Uh, you know, but look, I think, look, I will say that one of the best relationships on screen, and I would, uh, in, in like, let's give it in a group of 10. I would Jack definitely and think. Rose? Uh, I was going to say is Soderbergh's relationship between I love George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez and out of sight. <laughs> uh, and maybe it's bold to say they're in the top 10. But I just love, I mean, I think that they, I think that these are act, these are directors who capture great chemistry. And I think can create great stories of romance and love and connection. What I don't see from these directors is them capturing despair and depression. Now, now here, I think Arrival does a great job of that. There's a lot of people who can exist in that level of emotion. I just find, I find it interesting that those three directors are the ones who really are talking about it and are very influenced by it, but yet uh, they don't, their styles don't seem to be completely overlapping. They're much more in, in the Kubrick camp than I would see them in the Tarkovsky camp. Although I will say that uh, before Tarkovsky died, he did say that he liked the Terminator, the original. One. Hey, so there we maybe, go. maybe what drew Cameron to it is this idea of I want to make him proud of me. Like mm. it, it kind of feels honestly like a lot of these movies that people make. They want the ghost of Tarkovsky, like their memory version of him, their like solar right. planet version of Tarkovsky, who doesn't like anything, to come to them and say, Alex Garland, you did a good job. Alex Garland, I appreciate mm, what you did. Alex you are Garland, you are you fine. Today. Like they're yeah. wrestling with their own vision of wanting to make their daddy proud. And that may not even be conscious. It's just sort of like we want to create that same feeling that we had when we saw something that defined our lives, read something that defined our lives, that made us do the things that we want to do. And I don't think it's a bad thing to want to capture that at all, at at all. No, it's true. And honestly, like thinking about it in the years since Solaris came out, I mean, this movie is going to be 50 next year. Like where Tarkovsky was driving towards this idea that cinema should not be to work out logic puzzles. Cinema should be to capture great emotions the way that if you stare at a painting long enough, a thing he makes you do in this film happens. I think he has been proven right 
about the power of staring at an image and having an image that is emotionally driven and that an emotionally driven image is more powerful than anything on earth has been proven right in the last 10 years, more than Mm -hmm. any other time in history because of meme culture. Right? Right. Like, honestly, are we going to go two weeks in a row with me talking about the cat and the salad meme? Because we are. So like the cat and the salad meme, for example, a static image that we look at this, these emotions in this image, we build a whole tapestry of stories. It is endlessly reworkable to us to go back to this. Like, I think we actually live in a time period where we're proving Tarkovsky right all the time because nothing is more gripping to us than seeing an emotion really powerfully represented. Even if it's just something like the back and forth of the uh, A Star is Born meme, like seeing emotions on people's face and building our own backstories for what's happening, that is the touchstone that people gravitate towards. Like that's incredibly powerful. And so film, I think, doesn't take enough advantage of the raw power of an image because we get embarrassed. You know, I think film Mm -hmm. easily can turn into like, um, Dawson crying dot gif or something like that. Right. You know, but I don't know. I don't, I'm thinking a lot about that, about how a powerful emotion is a great uniter that we're drawn to in how we're proving that time and time again, because a meme doesn't have a clockwork story. There is no how or why there is no, that lady is not really yelling at that cat. It doesn't matter. Am I making any sense or am I? No, you are. And I think, I think what you're saying is, we have created a culture that doesn't allow ourselves to be uncomfortable in film. And I think that, I think the one thing that, the, that this movie and, and, and 2001 truly share is the ability to let you sit in something that you don't understand what you're sitting in. Um, and, you know, while Tarkovsky could feel like, well, he's doing that in a way just so you can look at ships. I think that, I think that Kubrick and based on his work, isn't just that guy. He's not. He's not wanting you to marvel just at a, a cool model. He's wanting you to think about things and giving you that space or giving you those sounds. And I think that they both are doing that. And we don't see that a lot. And we've talked about this now a handful of times. Like this idea of like, let's make film uncomfortable. Like let's let's make the experience not spoon fed. Let's make the like. Let's have the conversation be something where you and I walk out and we have a conversation like this where I don't think that you're wrong. But this is my perspective on it. And I don't, they don't think that there's a right answer. I just think it's like how you view the film. And I think we're so... And if, and if we do have a film like that, type in whatever movie you like, ending explained. Every mm-hmm. movie has ending explained. I just did a movie called Happily. And, uh, and it's like ending explained. And I've read four different versions of ending explained on Happily. I think maybe one is closer to my interpretation of it. The other movie that I did with Adam, uh, you know, Arch Enemy, there's ending explained. Like, people just want to type into Google. Oh, is there really? Me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every movie has an ending explained. Explain it to me. Explain to me what happened. Let me make sure I got it. Um, I mean, that's fine, but isn't is talk it? it out with my friend more fun? Talk it out. Like, yes, like I like that I get out. to talk it out with my, with my Paul I friend. agree. But like to me, ending explained means... There is an answer, mm-hmm. whereas it means like a discussion about the ending of Solaris is a different thing. I can't say ending explained of Solaris because unless it's the director going, this is exactly what I intended. Here is the thing. Like I know that um, Justin Thoreau got so much flack for explaining what he thought the ending of The Leftovers was. Now, that's his 
interpretation as an actor, producer, star of that show, who I think when you are on a TV show, you have to have a lot of conversations with the creators to understand what you're doing, what you're doing, how you're doing it. And so he came to the table, he explained his, what he thought the ending was. Now, is his more informed because he's been dealing with the creators? Yeah. And people fucking freaked out. They're like, no, 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 you wrecked it. It's like, there, you know, it's like, we want it explained. We don't want it explained. It's a, it's tricky. I, I don't know. I, well, I just, know, um, yeah. I think there's power when you don't explain. Cause you know, okay. If we are talking about where does this film fit in and does this film fit in on our list in our canon, mm-hmm. weirdly, the film that I think that Solaris overlaps with the most is Vertigo, mm. right? Like, think yes. about this film in yeah. Vertigo. Wow. Like, here yeah, are two absolutely. films about a man who's troubled and gets fixated on a girl and is that girl what she seems like this girl is. And it's a mediation on a man who's frustrated and befuddled and confused and and there are no easy answers in that film like that film right. i think is about the struggle it's about the mediation of like where am i existing and I, why am i in this loop of women and why am i in this like stuck world i think the vertigo and solaris make an interesting double feature in that way right with the multiple versions of hari with the feeling of being like of dealing with your emotions through externalizing them in your relationship with another person. Yeah. And so if you had to pick between the two, what would you do? What do you mean? If I had to go, if I was like, we only got room for one, I would pick Solaris. You'd pick Solaris over Vertigo. I, I would because Vertigo is a neat, clean package. I get it. I love it. It's beautiful. It's done wonderfully. And I truly, truly love it. There is something that I've never seen before with Solaris. That, like, Vertigo has been done. It will be done. I could see Soderbergh. And I know we're talking about Soderbergh a lot. But I could see Soderbergh doing a version of Vertigo over a version of Solaris. Actually, more. Because like, it has a little bit of a, a capery, kind of a heist in it. Mm-hmm. it you know, it has a, it, there's something really interesting about it. Um, and I think he does that really, really well. So, yes. Solaris for me, because... It's long, it's unwieldy, it's messy, it's it's just not clean. Yeah. And you have to go and you have to say, like, well, this is out in this world. Like I think this is this is doing a lot of wonders for the directors I love. Like if this is inspiring to the three directors we've been talking about a lot in this film, like uh, yeah, that's where I go. What about you? What what would you say? Oh, it's tough because now I'm playing out a whole domino effect in my head. And also yeah, we should have called this out. Like, I think Star Wars gets a lot of credit for, like, quote-unquote, creating dirty space and then, like, alien running with it. But dirty space is here. And I wonder what a touchstone this was in the creation of dirty space in, in Star right. Wars. Because, like, yeah, like, the ship, it looks like like the back of a circuit city, but also, like, fused with an Ikea. But also, I like, know, yeah. yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe, like, the calculation in my head is, like, would I put a Tarkovsky on and get rid of, an, of, of a Hitchcock when we have a lot of Hitchcocks? Yes. Um, would I want to put Stalker on over Solaris? Then the answer is also yes. So then I'm, but then I'm like, am I creating like an endless feedback loop? I think like, I like Stalker even better than this film. Yeah. Well that, I can't have that conversation with you right yeah. now, but I, yeah, but, yeah. but I would pick like, but I would pick this over contact. And I think when we talked about this a couple really? episodes yeah. ago, yeah. And I said like, well, what would, you know, I wouldn't put contact out there, but I would put this out there. You know, we live in a world full of depression, right? And it's mm-hmm. so hard to articulate like, 
how that affects people and, and what that does. And, and I think it's good to see, you know, it's hard. I mean, it's hard. Is no, it, I agree. I, yeah. You know, I, I think, I think that contact is a Sunshine wonderful movie. I wish have that dumb ending. Otherwise I'd want to put that on so hard. Yeah, I know. There you go. Well, you know, look, hopefully there'll be more and more, but I, I, I think, um, like I said, it's a very different film than I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. And, you have to go with it. You have to go with it. It's not perfect. It's not a perfect movie. And I think that's why I kind of appreciate it too. It's not like, it's not like, oh yeah, this is ideal, but no one else could make it. And, and people have tried. You know, Paul, I know that you're a man with nothing but endless amounts of time on your hand and you're just always looking for things to do because otherwise, yeah. God, you've got nothing to do. Nothing keeps uh, you busy at all. But knowing that you like this, I really want you to see Stalker and I really want you to see Aniara. All right. Like, I've, I really do. I just, uh, at your leisure, figured out. Right. I actually had to watch Stalker when, like, when theaters, op- um, the Arrow Theater here in L.A. played Stalker. It's like kind yeah. of, it's a, I hate the film, so you feel like you have to see it big, but that is yeah. a good big one. All right. But well, I, just, I love this. Not even, I, I think for the joy of what you like in this movie, I think you will love those movies. And I like adding joy to your life. Isn't that what I'm well, here for? Me and you all are of my, indeed. like, you robot are versions and memory versions of me. Both of us really enjoyed this. I mean, what did people think about this movie when it comes out? I mean, yeah. obviously, it, it opens a can uh, about 13 days after it opens in Russia. Um, and and I imagine like the Grand Prix. And yeah. Yeah. There, it was hard to find a negative view, but I did find one. Time Magazine okay, actually did not like the movie at the time. It got released here properly, properly in 1976. Mm-hmm. Um, but Time Magazine writes... Uh, From Boston to Berkeley and at sordid points in between, a Soviet sci-fi movie called Solaris has been gathering momentum as the latest cult film. We're getting that intro again that's now becoming familiar. Everybody's talking about it. Let me at it. But let me Um, tell you. He does the whole plot summary next in the review. But then he says, like, promising as all of this may sound, it becomes apparent after the first few moments that the movie is going to remain stubbornly earthbound. The effects are scanty. The drama gloomy. The philosophy of the film thick as a cloud of ozone. Oh, remember when we thought ozone was mm. thick? Um, the plot is not a original either. Although the seemingly ceaseless running time, nearly two and a half hours and considerably trimmed from the Russian version, one is put longingly in the mind of Forbidden Planet. And he talks about Forbidden Planet as like an example right. of how sci-fi can be smart and fun. Um, yeah. And then he says that uh, he, he really ends up siding with fun and says the people who made Solaris may be beyond such inspired silliness, but pomposity is no fair substitute. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. So he comes out on the idea of like, you got to be so miserable to make me think. Yeah. But also a little bit reactionary. Why y'all all talk about this? Let me take it down a notch. Well, I think that that's the, the same thing. I think it's also like it's what we're talking about is vulnerability, right? And are you vulnerable enough to, and this is what Tarkovsky was saying in my beautiful rendition of his interview, where he's saying like, you put enough of yourself in it. Are you, are you, opening yourself to this are you showing your heart are you are you okay with people rejecting something that they don't understand are you okay with people seeing how sad things can go and i think that a lot of people don't want to do that i don't think i think people don't want to leave things to misinterpretation because they like i would even drive drive it to the point of view of like ryan johnson made a lot of really interesting choices in the star wars movie um and just raked over the coals for it because like, well, this wasn't said and that wasn't this and that wasn't this and that wasn't this. And it's like we live in a culture of there's right and there's wrong. And there's very few directors who are willing to do something because it is engaging to them. 
And, um, and I think it's so much easier to say it didn't work. Didn't work because it, I don't recognize it as working. Yeah. Makes and, me uncomfortable. Doesn't work. Makes yes. me feel weird that I've wanted something different. Doesn't work. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and it's also and like, you know that I, I think that's my favorite one of all of the entire series. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I love Last Jedi and I love it because anytime you feel like Star Wars has a, at the helm, someone who has a creative point of view of what they want to achieve, mm-hmm. I'm all on board. I'm like, yep, great. Like, and that, like, and I don't say that, like, I, I genuinely liked it, but it was the first Star Wars film that I felt was truly directed by a director. I think, I think that Lucas is amazing and I think he's an amazing idea person. Uh, but I don't know if he is like, I wouldn't call him like one of the, the seminal directors. I would say he was one of the seminal creators, yeah. you know, I don't, you know, um, but I think, yeah, I don't know. No, okay, Again, well, made that, a lot okay, of hot well, takes wrap it all up, let's say this mm-hmm. then. I think if there is a truth that's in Solaris and it's mm-hmm. in contact and it's even in Ryan Johnson trying to destroy the idea of like who your mommy and daddy is, like controls yes. your destiny, yeah. which I want to like roll my eyes at forever. The idea then that connects these is that the people who go furthest out into space, into the beyond, into what's unexplored are the people that we end up kind of leaving them floating out there on their own. You know, mm-hmm. doubting, not believing, questioning all of their choices. So that that to me is the great metaphor for space. Go out and see what's even, if we can even comprehend what you've seen enough to like understand and empathize. Like that's the struggle for us as the audience to come with you into these places that have gone explored. It is, Yeah. I'm I'm there. We're there. We're on the same page. And I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I was going to try to add to it, but you just said it perfectly. Yeah. Well, then with that said, then let's see what happens when you work on a franchise. Because now we're doing Aliens next week. I love that. And what I really like about Aliens is, you know, we talked about the idea of uh, after the first movie, like adding a little bit more character, adding a little bit more depth. And, you know, this is a, a director who obviously influenced by uh, Tarkovsky. So let's see if we see any of it uh, next week. I love that we're talking about a director who who truly wanted to remake this movie next week. So we'll, we'll see how he does it in his space version. All right. Aliens. Y'all know the drill. Y'all can find that movie. Yep. All right. All right, Paul. Well, so it's good. been lovely going to the, uh, to the universe and beyond. Indeed it has been. So we will see you next week for Aliens and take a listen to the trailer. Bye-bye. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Yeah. I am me. Yeah. Yeah. I am me. Yeah. Nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Get them out of there! 
you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day. Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.